that we're afraid of, things that strike fear into our hearts. Some of them are rather common, things like claustrophobia, you know, afraid of confined spaces or, or the opposite of that, agoraphobia, the, the afraid of wide open spaces or acrophobia, the afraid of, afraid of heights. Uh, some children have myctophobia. That's a fear of darkness. They're scared of the dark. And <clears throat> a lot of adults have uh, hemophobia, afraid of blood. Just don't do well with that. And as we get older, some of us experience a new fear, rhytophobia, the fear of getting wrinkles. Apparently, there's nobody here today with ecclesiophobia, the fear of church, and I hope you don't have homilophobia, the fear of sermons, because that's what we're embarking upon now. And today, we're going to look at a couple of people who had come face to face with their fears, not like what was happening on Fear Factor, but they had the same fear in the final analysis. And the, let me get this, make sure I get this right. It is metathesiophobia, the fear of change. We're in Acts chapter 10 as we're journeying, making our way through the book of Acts. Hope you'll turn there. Acts chapter 10, we're continuing this study. Last week we saw the, the dramatic conversion story of Saul of Tarsus, how he moved from becoming someone whose life was dedicated to opposing Jesus Christ and everyone who followed him to a, a 180 degree turn and his life became dedicated to telling people about Jesus and the incredible joy that he brings into our lives. That, that radical conversion experience that he had. But the truth is, that conversion experience is only the beginning of what God has in mind for us. <clears throat> God's will for us is not that we simply have a once-in-a-lifetime conversion, but rather that we have a lifetime filled with conversions. A lifetime of transformation as we become more and more like Jesus. The, the religious term for that is sanctification. That is God's will for us, the way he designed the Christian life to be. This morning we're going to look at two very different men who God called to face their fears so they could experience two very different kinds of conversion. Let's start with Acts chapter 10 and, and verse 1. I hope you've got your Bibles open there. At, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. I love the way the Bible challenges the stereotypes we tend to embrace way too often. And it does that here with this guy. We're, we're introduced to him as a centurion. That's a soldier, a hard-nosed, tough-as-nails guy who could go into battle and, and, and stay strong, hang tough. This guy was not only a soldier, he was a commander. A centurion was over at least 100 soldiers. So he had the respect of these, these battle veterans, 
And he commanded them. And yet in spite of that image, what we find is this this guy is on his knees praying to God. Not only that, he's giving gifts to the poor. This this doesn't fit the stereotype of the hard-nosed military leader who has no time for weak people, does it? You know somebody like that? Somebody who is tough as nails, hard as they can be, got that, that crusty exterior. But when you really get to know them inside, they're kind and caring and compassionate. Well, there's something else we see about this guy. Look at verse 2. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. Might not be exactly what we think of when we think of a military guy or a military family. When we think of someone who is afraid of nothing. But this man is God-fearing. Now, now the truth is God-fearer, as it's used in the New Testament, is a rather specific term. It was used to talk about those people who embraced the tenets of Judaism, but they, they couldn't quite bring themselves to really become a convert, a full proselyte, and become a, a practicer of the Jewish faith. It, it may be that Cornelius was following the law of Moses in every way, except he never could bring himself to be circumcised. And as such, he would be seen as outside of the Jewish faith by any practicing Jew. He was definitely an unbeliever as far as following Jesus is concerned. Now, there's another stereotype for us. What comes to your mind when we talk about unbelievers? For some of us, it's, it's that, that godless person who has, you know, no morals, no respect for truth or God in his life and just lives a life totally devoid of any spiritual redeeming qualities. Or, or maybe it's not that person. Maybe it's the person who is, who is a very, fairly moral and ethical individual but, but has decided intellectually that there is no God. Either way, The practical reality is that they're denying God's existence, whether it's in the way they live their life or their their theology or lack thereof. But then if we were to ask unbelievers what their image is of a believer, I wonder what they would say. I suspect the thing that would pop into their mind, the thing they would think of is that ultra-right-wing religious Bible banger the the hardcore fundamentalist who seems totally disconnected from the reality of culture in the modern world today. Of course, that's not the, the true description of what Christians are, what believers are. But then the other stereotype isn't what unbelievers are either. Each of those... Is, is just a, a, on, the, on the bell curve, that normal curve would be just the, the end bits, the small fraction, that vocal minority that gets the press. The truth is believers and unbelievers go all along that continuum. And I suspect Cornelius as an unbeliever was someone who, was, who, who really cared very much about spiritual matters and and God. He just hadn't quite come to that point where he crossed the line and he made that commitment to become what God was calling him to be. We need to be careful about our, our stereotypes. 
And we see something else we don't expect here in, in verse 3. One day, at about 3 in the afternoon, he, Cornelius, had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. This guy, this grizzled army veteran who could, who could go into battle and stare death in the face without flinching, he comes face to face with an angel of God and he's like he's paralyzed in fear. All he can do is stand there and stare. Now, <clears throat> to be fair about this, the image that we sort of have adopted, the stereotypical image of angels is probably not really what we see depicted in the Bible. We recently put up all of our Christmas decorations and in one room in the house we have a bunch of angels around. And they all look rather similar. They're all female. They all have soft features and sweet expressions and wings and feathers and flowing beautiful robes and gowns and whatever it is. That is nothing like what we see depicted as an angel in the Bible. In the Bible, when you read about an angel, they're male, almost always they're male. They don't have halos or wings. They, they don't have these soft features and these sweet expressions and these beautiful clothes. But almost every time, whoever encounters an angel, their, their hearts are just kind of seized with fear. And so it's no surprise that that's exactly what happens here with Cornelius. He's afraid. I think I'd be afraid too. He's obvi it's obvious that God has gotten the attention of Cornelius here. Look at verse 4. Cornelius, what is it, Lord, he asked, and the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. Well, you don't have to tell Cornelius twice. Immediately, he gets a couple of his servants and one of the soldiers assigned to him, and he sends them to go and get this guy named Peter. Now, that's the first vision that we see in this chapter and, and the reaction to it. But in spite of that amazing response that Cornelius gives, there's still another vision that's necessary in order for Cornelius to come to faith, to find his way to Jesus. And we see that vision in the next paragraph. Look at verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey, the guys that Cornelius sent, and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. This is a very different kind of vision than the one Cornelius had. There is no angel. There is no clear message, go talk to Cornelius or, or anything like that. Just this strange vision of something that Peter wanted nothing to do with and an instruction to kill it and eat it. 
He couldn't imagine ever eating any of that stuff. See, Peter wasn't exactly a pigs in a blanket kind of guy. He's a devout Jewish person, a lifelong follower of the law of Moses. And contrary to what we sometimes tend to think about people who became followers of Jesus here in, the, in Bible times in the New Testament, they didn't give up their Jewishness when they converted to Christianity, when they accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Not at all. <clears throat> what they did is they still went to the temple they still went to the synagogue. They still followed, they still kept all 613 laws of the law of Moses, the Mishnah. Especially the dietary laws. So the very thought of eating the stuff that Peter saw in that sheet absolutely turns his stomach. Instead of responding like Cornelius, what Peter does is he says, surely not, Lord. Now, the irony there is there's a, that's a contradiction in terms. You don't say, you don't call somebody Lord and say, uh-uh, no way, not going to happen. I'm not going there when God tells you to do something. When God calls us to go, if he is Lord, then we're going we're gonna to follow but for Peter, like lots of folks today who see themselves as faithful followers of Jesus, the contradiction doesn't seem to register. So he says, nope, not going to go there. But God isn't going to take no for an answer. And Peter gets the word, don't you dare call anything impure or unclean that I've made clean. So Peter gets to see not just one rerun, but two reruns of this vision. He sees it a total of three times. Now, I can relate to this. I don't know how many times God's had to hit me over the head with something multiple times before it finally sunk in. Then the sheet disappears into heaven just like it came. And poor Peter's left just scratching his head wondering what in the world that's all about. Now, just as Peter's trying to figure out all this stuff, the guys from Cornelius arrive at the door. Isn't God's timing amazing? Look at verse 17. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why are you here? Why have you come? Men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Now, that's pretty clear. God's not going to take any chances on people figuring out what the vision means. He's bringing these people right to his door to tell him exactly what the meaning of the vision was. The problem is not understanding what God was calling Peter to do. The problem is if Peter does that, he is going against everything or something, many things that he and his family and his friends 
and all the good Jewish Christians he knows have held dear all their lives, longer than all their lives, for generation upon generation. Peter has an incredible decision to make. Will he follow the truth as God is opening it up to him now? Or is he going to cave in to the anxiety and the fear of what repercussions will ensue among these people that are really important in his life and shrink back from doing that? Don't underestimate the gut-wrenching choice this is for Peter. Just because we know how it plays out doesn't mean it's not one of the most difficult things Peter has ever done or ever will do. It's a tough decision, one that puts a lot of fear into people's hearts, that kind of change. Peter's come a long way since the garden and the night of the trial, though. I have no doubt that on this occasion, his mind went back to that night when there was that intense pressure to just kind of go along to get along, to just blend in, not take a stand. And when that rooster crowed, the devastating realization of his betrayal of Jesus sunk in. And Peter's not going to do that again. He's not going to make that mistake again. So Peter, in stark contrast to what he has thought and what he has stood for all his life, has the courage to step out in faith and follow where God is leading him now. He goes with the unexpected and uncircumcised visitors to see this man named Cornelius. And when they arrive at his house, Peter makes it clear he has understood what God is doing at this. Look at verse 28. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit with him. But God has shown me I should not call any man impure or unclean. And when he asked Cornelius why he sent for him, then Cornelius relates the story of his own vision. And Peter responds with these marvelous words in verse 34. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. God is saying to Peter, don't you take it on yourself to decide who's in and who's out, who is acceptable for my kingdom and who's not. That job is mine and mine alone, Peter. So Peter gets the message. And he starts right then and there to tell Cornelius the good news about Jesus. He starts at the beginning and he explains how that Jesus came and lived and died and was raised again so that we could be restored in this relationship that God created us to have with him. And he ends in verse 43, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And that's when God adds the crowning piece. 
Look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now, honestly, this is, this is one of those little sections of scriptures that we don't like to give a lot of press to. We don't really want to put a bright spotlight on this. For one, many of us are not comfortable with the Holy Spirit, and especially when you talk about speaking in tongues and stuff like that. that, that it's just not comfortable for us. And for another, we like to have everything nice and neat and tidy in our orderly little system, and this doesn't fit in that system. We think you're baptized, and then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and here they're receiving the Holy Spirit before they're baptized. What do we do with something like that? We don't like that kind of stuff. We get real uncomfortable trying to, trying to deal with things like that. But rest assured, the good conservative Jewish brothers that were with Peter, they were far more uncomfortable with that situation than we are. To be fair, they hadn't seen the vision Peter had. So this completely blows them away. But not Peter. Without missing a beat, Peter asks the pivotal question that will shape the future of the Christian faith. Verse 47, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So they were baptized and the course of Christianity was forever changed. You see, folks, the bottom line in this chapter is the conversion of Cornelius required the conversion of Peter before it was going to come to be. Peter wasn't converted to the person of Jesus, but he had to be converted to the mission of Jesus. And recognize that the mission of Jesus to take the good news of salvation to the entire world was more important than staying with what they had always done and what they were so very comfortable with. Maybe, maybe that's not the last time God has to do that. Maybe what God did then, he's going to do through us today. Because sometimes it just may be that the conversion of someone God loves and Jesus died for, in order for it to come about, we're going to have to experience the kind of conversion that Peter did here. We're going to have to say, you know, the way we've always seen it, the way we've always understood it, the way we've always done it may not be where God is leading us now. And we have to be open to where God is leading and have the courage to follow his leading just like Peter did. This is a story God continues to play out in the lives of people because God's will for your life and my life is not only that we experience that once-in-a-lifetime conversion, 
but that we have a lifetime filled with conversions as we grow and as we recognize where God's will is and as we move closer to the center of his will and give up our insecurities and get past our fears and go where God is leading so that others can come to know Jesus. God understands we can't do that all at once. Even Jesus, right before he went back into heaven, he told the disciples that over in John 16, verse 12. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. You can't handle this now, Jesus said. You can't handle it all. I've given you all you can deal with. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. God knows when we're able to handle stuff, but he continually pushes us to grow and to be transformed. And he realized on this occasion that it was going to take a pretty significant assault on Peter to get him to understand the mission that Jesus was calling him to. And to his credit, Peter responded, there are a lot of us that aren't that much different from Peter. We need God to get our attention and to challenge us to move out and step forward in faith. It's not easy. It never has been. It never will be. Like Peter, we like to think that we have it all down and we don't need to rethink any of the ways we understand things or any of the ways we do things. But if we're not careful, we will wind up like Peter saying, No, Lord. That's not what we need to do. That's not the direction we need to go. No, Lord. And we're, we're absolutely contradicting ourselves in that one statement. So the question for us today is the same one that Peter faced. What is it that we're afraid of doing? What is it that may be the difference in somebody coming to know Jesus Christ but You know, it's just way too far outside our comfort zone. What would God put in the sheet that he dropped down for us today? What would he put in your sheet today that you would struggle with? Many Christians, many churches find ourselves like Peter having to struggle with things we once thought were completely resolved. How you do stuff in a a worship gathering or who does stuff in a worship gathering. What's the role of the Holy Spirit and how does he work in the life of believers today? What are the things that are essential and and what are the things that we can disagree on? And if we do disagree, how do we treat people that see things differently than we do? The reality is God's still working on us today and calling us to revisit and to rethink some of the things and some of the ways that we have always thought. Healthy churches aren't afraid to do that, to take another look at what they're doing and how they're doing it, to ask hard questions and to study things again and to pray and to understand what God is leading them to do that may be different than the way it's always been. They realize there will always be some who cannot understand and will not accept anything that's not just like it's always been. But like Peter they realize that supporting Jesus and where he is leading and his mission to take the good news to everyone is far more important than any of the other things that we get so attached to.
Peter's actions precipitated a significant controversy in the first century. And then Paul came along and started moving in the same direction, and the controversy just grew. There's multiple places in our Bibles in the New Testament that explain, that that try to help people work through those times, those difficult things. Moving in new directions does not come easily. It does not come without effort and it does not come without struggle. But it is absolutely essential for us to be true to the call of God on our lives as individuals and as a church family. Because you see, if we don't do that, if we don't respond to God's call today, the evil one will absolutely suck the life and the vitality out of our journey of faith. I've been part of churches where the preeminent value was to keep anything from changing. The fear of, uh, of what might happen was too great. And the deceiver can convince us even that our salvation is dependent on getting everything right and not letting anything change. So we get afraid to even consider anything else. But I thank God that we in Churches of Christ are part of a movement that, that began in the very beginning as an effort to look again at the Word of God and not get stuck in the rigid structures that people have built up and said, no, you have to do it just like this. But there were people who said, we will have the courage to follow the will of God without being afraid of what someone may think or someone may say or someone may do in response. A heritage grounded in the belief that in every generation, we must re-examine the word of God and respond in ways that take an un changing gospel to an ever-changing world. And I pray today that God will give us here in this place the courage that he gave Peter in the first century and that he gave our spiritual forebears in the 19th and the 20th centuries to not shrink back from where he's calling us to go. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. For, for the way.